Why do you want to fight? This is the fight game with Demond Cotton. Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of the fight game on 1230 The Game. I am your host, Damon Cotton, and I say it each and every week, but there's so much to talk about in the world of combat sports. Where should we start? Well, first, let me tell you the guests that we have coming up today, because we have some good ones, some bangers, as we like to say. First off, we're going to be talking to Sam Gordon in about 10 minutes. Sam Gordon from the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Last week, we did the year in review, the best of in MMA. This week, we're going to do it with boxing with Sam Gordon around 12.10. Then 12.30, we're going to be talking to Cameron Hawkins from The Ringer. And he's going to be talking about a profile that he did with the icon Sting, one of the all-time greats in wrestling. So he did a great profile of Sting Sting on the ringer, and we're going to be talking about that. And we're going to finish up the show with a few good minutes, everybody's favorite segment, Jared, Danny, whoever will join me. And we're going to be talking about a little Waffle House. Waffle House fights, yes. I mean, hey, it's the fight game. Anything and everything is on the table for the fight game. But I want to start with something that I just listened to today. A podcast that intrigued me, FTR with Dax Hardwood from FTR, the best tag team in the world or top two, top three. I don't know where you want to rank them, but one of the best tag teams in all of professional wrestling. And on this first episode of the podcast, FTR with Dax Hardwood, he really shed some insight with the way he's thinking about working heel, working heel and being a heel, working heel inside of the ring and being a heel outside of the ring, how they're two different things the way he structures his matches, all of that good stuff that wrestling fans want to know. But my only critique of the podcast would be when it was time to talk about brawl out, all out, whatever you want to call it, the fight between CM Punk and the EVPs of the elite in AEW. He didn't give us too much. He told us that he talked to CM Punk after the brawl out. CM Punk told him. So he's got CM Punk's side of the story. And we know that he's had heat with the Young Bucks before he even stepped foot into AEW. But I just wanted a little bit. He just gave us a snippet because he's still got to tow the company line. Recently losing the AAA tag team titles, him and Cash Wheeler. So they're, they're losing all of their titles. And it's setting up to me, it's going to be an exodus from AEW. Lose the Ring of Honor champ, tag team championships. Losing the AEW Tag Team Championships. I'm sure at Wrestle Kingdom they're going to lose the New Japan Tag Team Championships. So for me, it's going to set up an exodus to leave AEW. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens there with FTR because a great profile. Dax gave a lot of good insight into his thoughts in the wrestling business. I want to see where it goes from there. But it doesn't seem like he's going to give the fans those real juicy nuggets, those real scoops that everybody wants to hear his actual thoughts on CM Punk's relationship with AEW at this point, because we all want CM Punk back in wrestling. But I wanted to hear him maybe a little bit more objective, you know, just about the entire situation. And maybe that's not fair to him because he is someone, he is still employed by AEW. The elite are technically, hey, they're the EVPs. That's the biggest problem with this fight in the first place. That's the big problem with said fight is that you have employees of position of power, bosses, you can say, fighting their employees in CM Punk. So he still has to toe that company line with AEW. But I still cannot wait to see where the podcast goes from here and where FTR goes from here. Because they're just a a tag team that I really want to highlight in AEW because after the loss to the Guns last week and the loss in AAA just this past, just yesterday, I want to say. It's not looking good for FTR. When are they going to get their wins? And he said something very important on the podcast because, you know, also taking a shot at Road Dogg in WWE. Wins and losses don't matter. And that's, as he wanted to say, that's not true. It's not true in wrestling to an extent. Because if you lose, you lose, you lose. You're going to lose your credibility. 
Who's going to want to see a guy that just loses every time he comes out? A tag team that you tell us they're the best in the world. They're one of the best tag teams of all time. They put on seven-star matches, but they keep on losing. Who's going to run a route for FTR at that point if they just keep on losing? So wins and losses in professional wrestling, I know people say they don't matter, but stop. Let me tell you, as a pseudo, as a former professional wrestler who didn't draw a dime, I can tell you that right now. But wins and losses do matter because you want them for your career standpoint. You want them to show, hey, the fans, they're getting behind you. Wins and losses mean they don't mean everything because, hey, making money being a big draw, that's the most important part. But you're not going to get that if you're constantly losing. And to the counterpoint, I saw a recent, not a poll, not a graph or anything, but just some numbers to kind of be on the other side of this. Seth Rollins in WWE had the most defeats of anyone in WWE in the year of 2022. But Seth Rollins, you know that he's a made man. You know that they can put a title on him whenever they want. You know that he's arguably number two in that company behind Roman Reigns. So yes, once you're a made man, once you're the heel of all heels and you can afford to eat pin after pin, the feud that he had with Cody Rhodes, he lost three straight times, but he still came out looking stronger than he did going into the feud with Cody Rhodes because Seth Rollins is a made man. He's money. So the wins and losses don't matter at that point. But when you're trying to gain that credibility, wins and losses matter more than you think. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Sam Gordon from the Las Vegas Review Journal, a jam-packed show. Don't go anywhere. This is The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to The Fight Game with Damon Cotton. Let's get it on! I'm pleased to introduce my next guest here on The Fight Game, Sam Gordon from the Las Vegas Review Journal, as we're going to be doing a little year-end review, the best of in boxing. Sam, thank you for joining me today. Damon, it's a pleasure. Uh, Happy New Year, happy holiday season. How's everything going? Oh, man, it's going well. I mean, not so well on the Raider end. I mean, the Raiders are giving me headaches each and every day this week. I know you understand what I'm going going through with the benching of Derek Carr. It's really making this end of the season more hectic than it needs to be. No, certainly, Damon. I don't think, I mean, I think that result is a byproduct of, of unfulfilled expectations on a number of levels. Uh, and here we are. So two weeks left uh, to go. Uh, the Raiders, uh, again, a mess at 6-9, and nine, having to bench uh, the, the face of the franchise, signaling what I feel like definitely feels like a, an end of an era here uh, with the franchise, the monster. We'll see how the rest of the season plays out, but not the ending that I think anybody involved with the franchise hoped for at the beginning of the season. But that's why I'm so glad we've got you here on the fight game. So now we can talk about the sweet science, get that release, talk about the year in boxing, because I know that everyone always likes to say that boxing gets down. But when you look at the year, you look at look back at the year, it was still a good year for boxing. Don't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Demond. I think there's a number of key storylines that, that, that I want to get into quickly. First, um, the emergence of women's boxing and you had. Uh, Taylor and uh, Serrano at the headlining MSG, selling out MSG being the most lucrative fight uh, in women's history. That was massive, massive moment for the sport as a whole, a massive moment uh, for those two women. Of course, Katie Taylor were, uh, emerging victorious in that. You have the, the rivalry at 130 pounds between Michaela Mayer and Alicia Baumgartner that culminated with Baumgartner's uh, decision victory over in the U.K. in a card headline by Clarissa Shields, uh, who took care of business uh, and becoming undisputed again in another division. So uh, it's been uh, an incredible year for the women on that side. I think on the men, uh, just a number of fascinating storylines. Of course, you have to start with Dimitri Bivol's upset victory over Canelo Alvarez in May uh, here for the, around Cinco de Mayo weekend where he comes in and puts on an absolute clinic uh, and then follows that up uh, in November with an equally impressive performance against Roberto Ramirez at 175 pounds. So he uh, really coming into his own as a superstar, we have Las Vegas' own Devin Haney going down under and claiming undisputed at 135 pounds, a massive, massive achievement, beating George Cambosis. He, go, he goes back, of course, defends the title. Uh, of course, the, uh, the Spence Crawford um, negotiations, right? Like that, we didn't get the fight, but that storyline remains relevant, and we'll see what that looks like going in um, to 2023. Of course, what is Canelo Alvarez going to do now? Uh, we have a number of undisputed champions, Jermel Charlo unifying the 154-pound division, so on and so forth. So 
still, we, 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 we still, I think, need more big fights. Hopefully, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath regarding Spence and Crawford, but hopefully um, that fight gets made and, and we can continue to get more big fights that have helped boxing get back into the mainstream. I think we're getting closer uh, for that point. There's definitely, uh, we're starting to see that reemergence, uh, but, but the sport is still holding itself back a little bit. But nonetheless, to your point, uh, a lot of fascinating storylines. I mean, we, we, we could be here all day. Uh, but those are a few that, that come to mind um, when, you, when you talk about 2023 or 2022. You talk about the storylines, but let's just give out some awards. Who would you say was the fighter of the year? Yeah, yeah, Damon. I, I would go with Dimitri Vivol, and that's respect, with respect to Bam Rodriguez, uh, who jumped up to 150, 115 pounds in a moment's notice, uh, captures the championship there, defends it in the summer, and then wins on the Canelo Alvarez undercard. He had a fantastic year, an emerging uh, young talent, in the sport, but, but what Dimitri Bebo, uh, DeMond was able to do with the clinic again, he put forth against Canelo here on Cinco de Mile really, um, showcased his skills on a world level showcase, um, that he is not, you know, that he right now is, is one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world. There's nothing he can't do. They really complete, um, fighter, the hand speed, the movement, the ring IQ, the footwork, all of it on display, uh, against Canelo Alvarez, and Canelo was on a historic run at that point, right, in route to unifying the 168-pound division, I think, in, a lot of my, in the minds of a lot of people, uh, including myself. I thought it would definitely be a tricky fight for Canelo, but thought he was going to emerge victorious. What Bebo was able to do on Cinco de Mayo was downright incredible uh, and really uh, um, making a name for himself as a superstar, I guess, within the sport of boxing, right? Um, so, so him on the men's side and then on the women's side, again, Clarissa Shields um, just – an incredible uh, year for her. She continues uh, to amaze and impress. She calls herself the greatest woman of all time, and it, it's hard to deny that um, with what she's able to accomplish with, uh, with her victory uh, over Savannah Marshall. Just a clinical, u- unanimous decision uh, that allowed her to, to unify the, the middleweight division uh, the, the, in female boxing. So she's, she's incredible. She had an amazing year, and, and her and Bebo uh, both at the, at the absolute top of their game, and I think fighters of the year respectively. All right, I want to ask you about Bevo. I've got a little follow-up there because on the ESPN pound-for-pound power rankings, he's number seven, and at number eight is Archer Bitterbev. Do you think that that fight's going to happen? Because it's something that I want to see, but I don't think it's a big money fight for those guys to unify in light heavyweight division. Yeah, I think you're spot on when it comes to the finance of the fight, Demon. I mean, these are two fighters that that don't have necessarily huge fan bases in America, right? Again, Bevo... Uh, who trains in California, he is breaking into the, into the mainstream and has, has been developing a name that went over Alvarez, certainly helping. But um, with Better Bia, uh, he, he's a, uh, also Russian who trains out of Montreal. I believe it is in Canada. So where, where would that fight be held? What, what kind of gate would that get? What would the TV rights look like? Things like that. It's just not as sexy of a fight. Instead, now, stylistically, it is maybe the best fight you can ask for in boxing right now. We're certainly on a short list. Uh, three or four, when you talk about the classic boxer uh, with Bevo and the, the puncher with Better BF with the power that he has and just the arsenal of offense. So stylistically, it would make for a fascinating fight. Um, I do think there's a chance we get it at the end of the year. Uh, it depends on what route, route Canelo Alvarez goes and what ends up happening with Dimitri Bevo. I think um, as much as Bevo has said, he, he's not necessarily interested in that fight uh, publicly in a number of interviews. That could be just posturing publicly. Um, we know that this is their this is their prize fighters, and that is by far his biggest payday—a rematch with Canelo. So that would probably, I think, take precedent over uh, a fight for undisputed with with Arter Betabiev. But if that matchup does happen, um, certainly for the for the boxing fans, it is it is one of the absolute best. And uh, not that there wouldn't be some some interest. I think there would be some some broader interest, but it's just not. It wouldn't have the markability of of uh, it wouldn't be a mega fight per se because of just the general. Um, I, I guess unfamiliarity or just the lack of markets for uh, for those guys in America. No disrespect to those fighters, but that, that that fight, you know, finding a location and network and all that, I think would be tough just with from a financial standpoint. Again, we're talking to Sam Gordon from the Las Vegas Review Journal here on the fight game, twelve thirty. The game. Now let's move on to your knockout of the year, and I'm going to throw out my honorable mention. I don't know if it's the number one knockout, but Caleb Plant. I mean, no, that's. That, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm I'm right there with you, Demond. I don't I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say I don't know. If, so is it yours? Well, let's let's talk about it. No, that is definitely my knockout of the year. Um, I think just kind of the the the, the tenor of that fight and the way it had been going. Um, when, when you think about just where that came from and, and and what it represents for Caleb Plant. Caleb Plant, of course, working with a new trainer for the first time with with, with Breadman, uh, the back from his first fight. 
uh, since since the Canelo since the loss to Canelo Alvarez here last November. Uh, it was a big opportunity for him on a Deontay Wilder pay per view to, to 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 showcase that he's still right there uh, in title contention at 168 pounds. And I think the criticism of Caleb Plant uh, earlier in his career and certainly leading up to the Canelo fight was was the power. Right? Was did he have enough power to keep Canelo Alvarez off of him to keep him uh, at a distance? Ultimately, he did not. But in working with a new trainer and now in having more experience and adapting and learning from the Canelo Alvarez fight, you see that that was a focal point, sitting down on his punches more and, and the way he was able to set up that left against Anthony Durrell, who, you know, clearly at the end of his career, but, but did have an explosive knockout um, here last November on the Canelo card uh, as well. So still had a little bit left and wanted to compete at a high level. And, and, and Caleb Plant put that to, to, to rest very quickly. That was a, a massive shot. Uh, a thunderous one-punch knockout, as, as clean of a setup and execution as you get. And, and now, and, and also the implications, right? It sets up what uh, promises to be a fantastic matchup with David Benavidez. I think one of the best matchups in all of boxing right now uh, that you can get to top contenders at 168 pounds. And that now, because of that knockout, that matchup, I think, has a little bit more intrigue as we turn the calendar uh, and go into 2023. And you mentioned that Deontay Wilder card, but Deontay Wilder, the knockout that he had over Robert Hellenius, for me, it was that Deontay Wilder, we all know that he's got that knockout power, but for me, it's always so fun to see Deontay Wilder perform and put on a show. No, Devon, boxing is, boxing is better with the bronze bomber when, when he's active and when, and when he's fighting at a high level. And, and, you know, those two fights against Tyson Fury, emotional, brutal, physical wars, right, as, 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 as I think violent of, of fights as you're going to get in the heavyweight division in which both men um, absorbed a lot of punishment and Deontay Wilder certainly on the receiving end of his fair share. So I think um, just in getting him, uh, I think there were some questions about whether or not he wanted to come back. And I spoke with him shortly before that fight. And, you know, he acknowledged contemplating um, retirement. There was certainly a thought, but, uh, you know, still has a lot left in him. And to see him come back, I thought um, a great opportunity against Robert Hellenius in Brooklyn, where he's a, a good draw. Um, on a good pay-per-view card to, to showcase, hey, he's still here. He's still a player in the heavyweight division. Uh, it, was a, it was an excellent shot. It was a, a quick knockout. Uh, and, again, a reminder that just because he lost to Tyson Fury doesn't mean he's not still an elite heavyweight and one of the most dangerous men in the division. He's still uh, – any fight he's involved, with, he's involved in uh, is going to be fireworks, and he reminded fans of that and the boxing public with that very quickly uh, on that card in October. Again, we're talking to Sam Gordon from the Las Vegas Review-Journal. You can follow him on Twitter, at Gordon. So, Sam, what was your fight of the year? Yeah, my fight of the year, Devon, that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll go quickly on the men's side. For me, personally, uh, going to go a little bit with a dark horse, Fundora Lubin right here. Uh, I believe that was at, um, I'm, not, can't, I'm not sure which property it was at, but it was at one of the smaller properties, a smaller show, maybe Park MGM or something of that nature. Uh, but an excellent uh, Showtime main event featuring 154-pound contenders uh, Sebastian Fundora and Erickson Lubin back in April. Both men hit the canvas uh, and really a coming-out party for Sebastian Fundora, the six, uh, the towering inferno as he goes by 6'6". He can make 154 pounds uh, and really stood in the pocket and banged with a, a, a power puncher uh, in Lubin whose only loss was to Jermel Charlo. So uh, that was an excellent, excellent fight. Uh, on the men's side, uh, I, uh, with Fedora winning, I believe, by a 10th-round TKO, uh, a lot of violence. Both men showed a tremendous amount of heart uh, and, and competed at an incredibly high level. Unfortunately, one of them had to lose. That's the nature of the sport. Uh, on the women's side, tomorrow, we got to go back to Taylor Serrano. Uh, Madison Square Garden, sold-out show. Uh, one of the best events of the year. Uh, a packed house in a fight that I, a lot of people saw differently. The judges, of course, uh, awarding the decision to Kaylee Taylor, Katie Taylor. But when I watched the fight live, and that was on the same night as the Shakur Stevenson-Oscar Valdez fight here at MGM Grand Garden. Another really good fight and coming out party for Shakur Stevenson. A lot of us in the, in the media on press row were streaming Taylor Serrano. Uh, and I felt like, from my perspective, Serrano won that fight. And you could argue in, in those middle rounds there when she had Taylor hurt, if there's, a, if there's three minute rounds in women's boxing, she's able to complete the stoppage. Of course, Taylor able to regroup and put forth a heck of an effort. Uh, in the late rounds, you, she captures a controversial decision. But, but boxing at its best, um, regardless of gender, a packed out, packed out Madison Square Garden, uh, the most lucrative fight in, in women's history, and, a, and an excellent main event uh, that showcased two of the best fighters in the world. So, uh, a lot of awesome fights this year. Um, respect to several other ones, but those to me on the men's and women's side, respectively, were my two favorite fights in the fights of the year. And just a quick correction that Fundora Lubin fight was at the uh, Virgin. 
Well, there yeah, you go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and also, so we're gonna move on there. I mean, great contention there. I was gonna ask you what was the favorite, what was your favorite fight that you attended, but you already gave me that answer there. So let's look ahead to 2023. What is the matchup that you want to see the most? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think, and, and I don't want to get uh, you know get caught up in this cycle again of where we get our hopes up and then only to be let down um, as media and fans. But but Spence Crawford, if there's a way um, to make that happen, of course, Errol Spence was uh, was supposed to have a fight. Uh, I was told in February um, against Keith Thurman here in Vegas that, of course, pushed back or delayed or still up in the air, no official announcement. I was told that they were nearing an announcement for that fight on T- at T-Mobile uh, Arena. That is not going to be happening because of the car accident Errol Spence is in. So we know he's going to have to wait a few months. Of course, Terrence Crawford, a promotional free agent. Could he work with PPC? And uh, now Heyman again after the way those negotiations fell, th- fell through. Ultimately, I, I think there there is... A uh, sliver of hope we see it, but I'm not. I'm not ready to go there. As far as I'm, as far as I know, there have been no negotiations. Nothing's really ignited there. We have to wait for Errol Spence to get healthy. So if that happens uh, in 2023, if there's a way for for that to happen, I think that's what we all um, want to see. But but the other one uh, for me, the mom would be. I, I mean, the unification at the heavyweight division, right? Uh, Tyson Fury, Alexander Usyk. It looks like we're going to have that fight with Bob Bob Arum, uh, top ranked chairman Bob Arum, telling uh, outlets. That um, and other reports emerging that they've agreed uh, in principle to uh, to a to a deal for that fight. Now, of course, nothing announced, no specifics yet, but in principle, uh, that signals that we, we we could be in good shape to see that. Uh, I think an excellent matchup. Uh, Fury, of course, I think is going to be a, a a significant favorite just just with his size. But it will be interesting to see him in there uh, if we get that fight against another master boxer, somebody with an equal or better ring IQ with footwork, with, with hand speed, with all these attributes that Fury at times himself uh, has showcased in the heavyweight division. Fury, of course, pivoting and now more of a, a puncher. We know he has the, the, the elite boxing, uh, and still that's a, a big foundation of his offensive attack, but he has added a power element to his game. So how will those two styles uh, meet and play out if we get that fight? So those are the, 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 the top two. Uh, I want to see, but again, there's a, a number of, of fascinating matchups uh, that I think we can see uh, in boxing moving forward. Shakur Stevenson, of course, up to 135 pounds now. Nioya, in a way, uh, the monster, arguably the number one pound-for-pound fighter, moving up to 122 pounds. What is Bam Rodriguez going to do? What is Canelo Alvarez going to do? Benavides plant. Uh, it looks like that's going to be happening here coming up pretty soon. Uh, so there's a number of fascinating fights, uh, I think, um, you know, maybe not quite the end of the 2022 that, that a lot of boxing fans wanted, but there's a lot of promise going into 2023. I try and be an optimist about these things. I, don't, I want to be a realist, but an <laughs> optimist, because I think that's what our sport, you know, what the sport needs, what boxing needs, what boxing fans need, what boxing fans need. So um, it was a great year overall, even, even with all the disappointments, still, still a rock-solid year, a lot of stars. A lot of incredible performances and looking forward to what hopefully is an even better 2023. All right, we're going to end with this. I'm not asking for a hot take, but you can give me one if you want. But what is, what's your biggest prediction for 2023 in boxing? Oh, geez, my biggest prediction in 2023 in boxing. Um, oh, wow, that, that, is a, that is a fantastic question, Devon. I'm going to say, um, oh, geez, really put me on the spot. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a hot take. Um, I'm gonna say, I don't know if it's that hot. I, I think Canelo Alvarez is gonna fight Dimitri Vivol again, uh, and I think he's gonna lose again. So that I, I don't, I don't know if that's a, if that's a hot take. I don't. It, it, that his Canelo has told reporters, different outlets publicly that that is a fight he wants to pursue. I'm not sure what can necessarily change, what what approach would be different, or what Canelo Alvarez can add between now and then, based on what we saw in the first fight. Perhaps a, a better gas tank better conditioning and a slightly different game plan. Um, but what would that game plan be? It, it feels like Bebo has the counter or the adjustment or, or the tools to pretty much negate anything that Canelo uh, has good at, is good at or what, what Canelo showed he was good at, just a matchup nightmare for him. So I don't know if that's too spicy. I think that's that, based on what we saw in the first matchup, uh, there's not a lot to, to necessarily back Canelo in that, uh, in, that, um, in that rematch. But if he were to win and if that fight happens and he were to avenge that demand, it would be a heck of a redemption uh, for him, and I think it would vault him right back to top pound for pound status if he were to get that done. So that'll be a fascinating thing um, to watch. He's still the number one draw in the sport, so you know, I'm curious to see what his 2023 will look like. Sam, I don't think it's a hot take at all because I don't think he should take the rematch. So I'm right <laughs> there with you, man. Sam Gordon, thank you for coming on the fight game. Let everybody know what you got going on. Yeah, some year, some end of the year stuff, Demond. I'll be, I will be uh, 
finishing out with our review journal, Raider coverage, and taking a look at what could be down the line for a couple of uh, key Raiders now that a, uh, a quarterback change has been made and now that the, fran- fran- uh, the, the trajectory of the franchise seems to have been altered. So, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, we'll see you out at Allegiant Stadium on Sunday. Uh, I appreciate you having me on the show, man. Looking forward to uh, hopefully some great fights uh, in 2023 and at uh, the end of, a, of a, what's been an interesting football season. So Happy New Year, Damon, and appreciate everything. Thank you for coming on. I'll see you Sunday. Talk to you later. And that was Sam Gordon from the Las Vegas Review-Journal. You can follow him by Sam Gordon on Twitter, always putting out some good stuff. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Cameron Hawkins from The Ringer about the icon, Sting. Don't go anywhere. This is The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to The Fight Game. Welcome back to the fight game on 1230 The Game, and I'm pleased to introduce my next guest, Cam Hawkins from The Ringer, and we're going to be talking about the icon Sting. You put out a piece, and it starts with Sting's four-decade career, so I know that we can't encompass all of Sting's wrestling career, but I just want to start with the best nugget that I got from the piece is that Scott Hall gave him the idea for Crow Sting that we know today. Yeah, man. I, um, I think I wrote in there something about uh, Scott Hall's blockbuster card being uh, more valuable than Ted Turner's Diners Club card. Um, you know, he kind of saw Scarface and brought that to, uh, to Vince McMahon and with Reggie Ramon. And then, um, you know, Sting, uh, to his credit, you know, kind of said he was always looking to kind of stay current and stay fresh. He looked across the hall at what was going on kind of with uh, WWF at the time. He was like, yo, I got I to gotta freshen this up. Like, these guys are more current, these guys are more modern. And, you know, when they're all brainstorming, like, who's going to oppose the NWO, since Scott Hall brought in the idea. So, yeah, he deserves a lot of credit for uh, his mind, not just the other uh, things he did in the ring, for sure. And with this piece, talking to a legend like Sting, how did this come about for Sting to basically open up and give you his career blow for blow, beat for beat? Oh, man, it, um, reputation, really. Um, you know, my, my first piece over there was... Uh, about my man, uh, Ricky Starks. And then Ricky Starks and I had a relationship before I even got hired over there, so that was easy. But, you know, working with AEW Media, um, I think they really were kind of on a show-and-prove thing. Like, I, I did the, uh, the Ricky thing, they know that's going to be fine because they know we have a relationship. I've basically, in my head, been writing that story for a year and a half. Then I talked to Dax, and I've never talked to Dax Hollywood before. That goes well. Um, I do the mellow thing for WWE, but then I jump back over and do the Tony Storm thing. And I think, I think the Tony Storm piece is what really kind of impressed them over there. Um, you know, it was an early in the morning thing. Um, you know, her personality is a little bit different than a lot of people who have been doing it longer, and, and that really worked out well. So it was almost from the second thing I did, I was kind of in their ear like, yo, I want to talk to Sting, I want to talk to Sting, I want to talk to Sting. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, um, they hit me and they were like, yo, um, Sting wants to talk to you. So I guess it was kind of a combination of, hey, you know, this guy's been doing good stuff for us. And I think, I think they trust me over there to uh, make sure that I'm putting their, their talent in the best light, that I'm not trying to take things out of context, that I'm not looking for controversy. I want to tell you about people. I want you to know about people. So, uh, yeah, we got together. Um, we got together virtually last week. I think it was the 19th. We kind of sat down, we talked for an hour, and come to find out, um, the guy we were going through is about my age uh, over there at AEW Media, and so we were both, like, you know, Sting fans growing up. And so it was everybody kind of getting to not only live nostalgia, but there are things that they don't talk about because they're coworkers and he's not comfortable asking. But, uh, yeah, it was just uh, being a fan and also wanting to understand the person. Um, yeah, I think relationships and, and showing them the kind of work that I do played a big role. It was definitely a, uh, you needed the resume to go in there and it was a resume builder for sure. So what is, what was your relationship like with Sting growing up? Was he one of your favorites or were you on the fence? Because me being more of a WWE guy, I looked at him as their answer to the undertaker where, Hey, he's not, he's not that for me, but I was still a big fan of Sting. Oh, I was channel clipping kid and I was um, upstairs in my parents' game room back and forth, uh, WWF, WCW, WWF, WCW. And I was still very much at that time, outside of like a Mr. Perfect, I was very much cheer the faces, boo the heels, right? 
Um, so, nah, man, I, was, I was a big Sting fan, especially when he came back like as the Crow. And, of course, I was probably too young to watch the Crow. So he was actually like my my basis for what that character was. And I loved it. And then I was like, I was one of like three kids who like loved Wolfpack Sting. <laughs> Wolfpack Sting was amazing. So I was Sting has his energy back and he's excited. But nah, man, I was a big fan. Um, right up until WCW closed, um, the TNA stuff at the time was weird to me. Um, and there's kind of a, an ongoing joke uh, on Twitter about me and Sting. But nah, I was a big fan of Sting as a kid, absolutely. When you brought up Wolfpack Sting, you made me smile a little bit because I, I'm a sucker for red face paint. So re- the red, the black and red combo, that made me a fan. Like, I thought that that was better than Crow Sting. I can't remember the actual storylines or what was going on. But just from an action figure standpoint of, oh, no, nah, man, this is like the best character on all the TV. He's got black and red face paint, and he's a part of the NWO. Whenever I was playing uh, Revenge, I would always, like, cycle to the red face paint. Like, I don't want to watch the white face paint thing or a red face paint thing. Absolutely. And he had, like, a little... And he, like, actually had a goatee under that. And he was... Um, knowing him a little bit better now, I can see him, like, experimenting even with that look. But, yeah, and he was... You know, his wounds were louder. He was jumping higher, I felt like. It was, he was fun. He was definitely fun at the time. Again, we're talking to Cam Hawkins from The Ringer here on The Fight Game on twelve thirty. The Game. And now with this Sting piece, where I never thought we would see him wrestle again after his stint in WWE. So what did he tell you was it like to get that comeback to go over to AEW? He was appreciative, man. He, he wanted to... He was looking for that last thing. He was really looking to end his career on the right note. Um, I was surprised at how, like, dedicated he was to having a match in a program with The Undertaker. He really wanted that. And when you hear stuff like people like us on social media talk about wanting it, people making mock graphics and magazines, it kind of sounds like a thing a wrestler might not feel a way about. But he really, really wanted that. And so I think an opportunity to really close things up, but it's the introduction of the cinematic match by WWE, I think that we revived and revitalized a lot of older wrestlers' ideas of what they can and cannot do. Um, Braden, that thing really made him want to come back. And originally, when he saw that, you know, his interest was doing that with WWE in some capacity. And so I think that, you know, Tony Khan saying, hey, we want to bring you in for something, and then that being the type of match, it had already kind of speak, uh, piqued Sting's interest. And so, yeah, I think he was, he was kind of all aboard when he knew that that was something that, that could be produced. You say that, and, but do you think that in his run in WWE that maybe he would have called it a, a quits if he would have gotten that Undertaker match? I think so. I think so. I think if he gets that, and maybe not even the Undertaker match, I think that whatever trajectory he was on, like I don't think he was going to beat Seth Rollins regardless, right? But I think that, if they had kind of a, a final match with somebody, maybe they dragged uh, uh, Shawn Michaels out of the time a bit earlier than they did when he did the, uh, the tag match. I think there was somebody there like for him to end up wrestling, but I think he would have closed the door then. I think he would have. I think that dealing with the injuries and the dissatisfaction creatively, um, there's a reason he kind of kept his options open. Uh, but yeah, I think he definitely would have closed up if they had uh, presented the right match to him and if it didn't end with him not being able to compete physically. Now with the AEW run, he's teaming with Darby Allen. How did that come about, and what's his relationship like with Darby? Um, he, he loves that kid, man. He loves that kid. I think that I didn't realize, like, you never know how deep they actually watch this stuff, but I think Darby, you know, being the face paint guy, being the blonde-haired guy, being what's considered cool nowadays, I think Sting kind of keeps his finger to the pulse on that. And so I think they had a relationship there. And his biggest thing about Darby Allen was he never dogs it. You know, I think they go about it in different ways. Of course, Darby does not have the frame that Sting does. He doesn't have the physicality that Sting does, but he goes all in every time. And I think that it wasn't Sting's idea to come in and help Darby first. I think that Tony kind of saw the parallels um, and their similarities but then getting to know Darby a bit more, his interests, his ideals, I think that's what really got Sting. And so that's his little brother, man. That, that is who he wants to end his career next to. And, and to already have like, that idea in such a short period of time, 
I can just imagine the time they spent talking and going over stuff. But yeah, he, he loves that kid. He really does. You say that's who he wants to finish his career with, end his career with, with this team, with this teammate, this relationship with Darby Allen. How much longer do you think Sting has in wrestling? I know that the uh, so the Muda match is coming out in January, right? And he kind of considers them contemporaries. So I don't see it going a whole lot further than that. Right now he's in good shape. Um, he did just have like a, a minor surgery to drain his knee, but nothing that like debilitating or anything, right? So. I could see 2024 kind of being when he, when he really does wind it down and has that go-away match because one thing that he did talk about was staying in shape even in the face of injury. Um, like I didn't realize at the time there was only a three-year gap, a uh, two-and-a-half-year gap between WCW closing and him going to TNA. It was not like some type of huge layoff, but he did stay in shape at the time. He looked at his contemporaries. Um, guys he came up with, you know, the, the Steiners and Lex Luger's of the world, and, um, you know, some, some good and some bad, but he knows that he had to change his body, he had to change, change his training, but he, he feels like he can do the things asked of him still, like, at a high level, but I could see about two years from now that really winding down, been really telling the full story, because, again, they're, they're not showing any weakness in his game right now. They're treating him like a legend should be treated, which is, why I reached out to talk to him in the first place, and that they've done like an exemplary job of that. But yeah, with Muda finishing things up early next year, I could see mid to late 2024 being when he really hangs it up. Again, we're talking to Cam Hawkins from The Ringer here on the Fight Game on 1230 Game. You can follow him on Twitter at Seahawk. Now, a couple of more sting questions that I got for you. How did he speak about the TNA run? Because I don't know how you felt about him in TNA. But I wasn't all in, but I liked it from the main event mafia to where, you know, he wasn't wearing the face paint to him basically carrying the company. How does he feel about that time in his career? He's highly of it up until the very end. You know, he says that there were management issues at the end that made him want to leave. But what he really gives them credit for is getting to be himself creatively. Um, I think the most interesting thing that we talked about was the Joker scene character is probably the closest he's played to his actual personality with every iteration we've seen of him. So not Blade Runners, not Surfer Guy, not Crow Guy. Um, Joker thing is the most like him. And, you know, he's a guy who, uh, the way he described it, they'll see somebody at the airport who kind of talks a different way or moves a different way. And then next thing they know, they're in the locker room at the next show and he's imitating them. And so and that's really who he is. So it, it lets him open up and be him creatively. He kind of had the uh, had the money in the bank, so to speak, to be able to get away with that. But yeah, he, he appreciates his time there. But, you know, we saw it play out on screen at times and then at the very end. Um, you know, he didn't like the way management was going, but he does appreciate what they did for him in picking his creative interest. Yeah, there's also a little tidbit in the article about him playing, ca- him playing cards with Macho Man Randy Savage and him just doing That's the impressions. Right. Was there a bit of Sting that wanted to get the acting bug and want to pursue Hollywood a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I thought it was interesting. Like, I, um, you know, I'm a Star Wars kid like most kids, and so I assumed as a kid that Mark Hamill did Star Wars, did the Giver, and just disappeared into thin air. You know, like, it didn't work out for him, come to find out, like, he was like the voice of the Joker, maybe like the most iconic uh, animated cartoon character, a like comic book character ever, right? And so, yeah, he wanted to act. He wanted to be different actors. He wanted to do voice acting. Like, he really did want to experiment with different voices and tones, and uh, it just never really worked out for him. Um, I think that there, there could have been a time for him to really put all effort into that, but they kept giving him so much money to wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> giving him money. He said he wanted to do it for five and six years, and he's talking to me almost 40 years after the fact. So, yeah, um, I think just uh, he never really got a chance to put the time into it he would have. But, yeah, there, there's a different universe out there somewhere where Steve Borden is Dave Batista. Oh, man. And my last thing question, what do you feel that he feels is the highlight of his career? Um, I really think that he appreciates Ric Flair so much. Um, I think those matches with Ric Flair mean a lot to him. Um, and those matches in Japan. Um, he talks about like how that's just a feeling you can't recreate unless you're there, which is um, another reason why he wanted to go and help with Muda send off. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, that time in the 80s, 
uh, with Ric Flair, the time in Japan, and then really, um, it's not so much an in-ring thing, but I asked him what he contributed to the longevity to, and the first thing he said was, stop doing steroids in 1990. I think the highlight of his career for him is the ability to have a long career. I really do. Um, you know, changing his life in 1990 with steroids, changing his life in 1998, getting away from any type of drugs or alcohol. Um, I think his ability to just do it for so long is what he really cherishes. So the moments, the moments are definitely, um, you know, Ric Flair putting him on game early, you know, getting those Japan crowds. But specifically, um, I, I would say longevity. And then there's also the thing that he dropped where basically 50% of all merch sold was uh, NWO and the other 50% were like sting masks. So that, I'm sure that check don't hurt <laughs> for the <laughs> highlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That time we just played in the 80s is, is, is what he really speaks highly of. All right, Cam, I only got a few more questions for you. I'm just going to pepper you rapid fire with a couple of best of the year questions throughout all the wrestling. You good with that? Absolutely. All right, wrestler of the year. Wrestler of the year, Roman Reigns. Um, making the most money at the biggest events, uh, my favorite character, and really doing something special like with his family in, in Sandy Night. Match of the year. Match of the year, Sheamus and Gunther. Um, I like big dudes beating each other down. Um, I thought that Clash of the Castle crowd was the perfect audience to do that in front of. It, it's barely, barely my favorite over Street Profits, Usos at Money in the Bank, uh, my favorite tag match of the year. But, yeah, Sheamus Gunther. Um, Gunther is going to have a world title run here pretty soon, and it's going to be out of this world. Oh, man, I can't wait. And like Big E said, big meaty men bumping meat. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. And storyline of the year? Um, storyline of the year would be the bloodline. Um, definitely the bloodline. Um, the, the twists and turns. Jay Uso, um, I think, just has the potential to be an absolute star. Sami Zayn is WWE's on-screen MVP. Like, all those moving pieces and for it not to fall apart, I think is great. Um, it means for this to be, like, just so WWE central. Like, John Moxley is right there next to, next to Roman and Russell of the Year. But, yeah, I think the Bloodline storyline, with his twists and turns, um, then throwing Sammy in to keep it fresh, throwing Solo in to keep it fresh, I think that's my storyline of the year. All right, last one. I'll get you out of here with this. Biggest prediction for wrestling in 2023? Jey Uso, World Heavyweight Champion. Ooh, now that's a hot take. Oh, man, I'm going to have to uh, sit on that one for a little bit. But and I'm telling you, just just read the cards, man. Read the cards. Go watch it never happen. I'm sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cam Hawkins, thank you for joining me here on the fight game. Before I let you go, let everybody know what you got going on. Absolutely. Um, I guess you can find me on social media, um, Seahawk, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, primarily Twitter. It's where you're going to see all the fun stuff. Um, I just recently I finished up my run with the Pro Wrestling Torch. Great 10 years over there. Make some amazing contacts, did some great work, have some great friends that I will keep for the rest of my life. Um, primarily, you're going to see me I'm at TheVinger.com writing about wrestling. Um, how do you follow up talking about Sting, probably one of the top five baby faces ever in the wrestling business? I have no idea, but uh, go ahead and uh, check me out over there, Cameron Hawkins at The Ringer. Follow along. We'll see what we come up with next. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Appreciate you having me as always. Happy New Year. Thank you, thank you. Happy New Year to you as well. That was Cameron Hawkins from The Ringer, and you can check him out on Twitter, at Seahawk. One of my favorite follows, not only just wrestling Twitter, but of all of Twitter. And when we come back here on The Fight Game, we're going to finish up with a few good minutes. Excuse me. I need a moment of silence so I can get into a meditative state where I block out any and all irritating white noise. I call it my happy place. Un momento! Un momento! Oh, do you want better? Wait a minute. I see what's going on here. Oh, do you want better? Wait a minute. No. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. A few minutes later. All right. It's time for a few good minutes as we wrap up the show here on The Fight Game. And Danny's joining me, and we're going to be talking about what else, the biggest news in all of The Fight Game this week, Waffle House fights. Danny, you're watching the video. Danny had only seen the chair stiff form of the video. Now that you've seen the full video, what do you think about the Waffle House experience? Dude, so I grew up in Virginia, and we had a Waffle House in the nearest town where I lived. And it 
it wasn't anything like this. So I've never experienced Waffle House fights, but my goodness, this is fantastic. And we had talked about it on the press box on Wednesday. And that conversation does not do this video justice. This is this is amazing. Yeah, but do you know the the Waffle House lore, the mystique of? Oh yeah, hey, yeah you're gonna yeah. pull up. There's somebody's gonna be co- like smoking outside before they cook your food. So we all know that, right? But did you not know about the Waffle House throwing down like this? I mean, I had heard. <laughs> I've seen I've seen like some little snippets here and there of videos, but nothing like this video. This is fantastic. You know, so many good parts about the, the fight, but the Waffle House employee, the lady who stops the chair, oh not before she stops the chair, the punches that she was delivering. Oh, oh man. She combos. had the chick in a headlock and just wailing on her. She was going body, body, head like she watched the fighter oh, yeah. with Mark Wahlberg. You know, a fantastic technique. And I will say, though, she caught the she caught the customer at a little disadvantage because that customer was walking on the counters and took a tumble. <laughs> and when I say tumble, she came down hard into the back and the the worker just grabbed her and just wailed on her. But that's the problem when you're jumping over the counters. One time I have a bartender friend and she gets into an argument with the customer and she tries to hop over the bar, hits her knee, and then tries to hop over again. And then by that time I said, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, you lost done. all your momentum for the fight. You she would have ended go. up like the chick. You, you, when you try to jump over the counter, you're already at a disadvantage. Yes. That was the first mistake by that customer. A hundred percent. If you're coming over the counter, you're you're on the offense. Defense has every right, and they're in the better position. Those workers will always win. Yeah, and they're trained for it. I'm sure that the Waffle House, you it's know, it's in their training. They have yeah, to, it's like as soon as you find out the application, throwing. you know, it's like, yeah, can you lift a box over 50 pounds? And uh, can you fight? Can I? Can I fight? Can you? Can you <laughs> throw <laughs> coffee pots at customers when they get rowdy? How many can you take on at a time and still hold your ground? Not win, but just you know, be respectable. Will you stay at the job when a metal chair gets thrown at your head? Man, because the guy who ducked it, I saw him getting a lot of praise on Twitter, too, because one guy had to narrowly get out of the way of the chair, you know, because we're giving a lot of credit to the woman who blocked it. But there was a guy who had to have the sixth sense and then right. like just move an inch forward so the chair didn't hit him in the back of the head. Also, a little bit of credit goes to the thrower. Mm-hmm, like, it's hard to throw a chair just tossing it, but, like, she throws it from probably – eight feet away and it goes directly at her target and mm. she's throwing it from like some weird side angle is this is a good throw but even better stiff arm good throw better stiff arm is what you're going to say so also if you were at this waffle house would you be one of the people saying hey man stop we should be thinking about the plan in unity oh no oh no you're an agitator i, I wouldn't i wouldn't agitate it i wouldn't egg it on but i would Probably be just sitting in the corner and be like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Keep it over there. Oh, my goodness. Let's go. Let's go. But keep it over there. <laughs> would you move? Or would you, would you be the guy? Would, I would. I think I, if I saw it and I see people recording and if it's coming towards me, I would want to be the viral. I would want to have my viral moment as that guy was still just eating his waffle. Yeah. Like I would, <laughs> I would hang out. As long as I wasn't getting into the line of fire. Like, if mm. I'm sitting at a table and everything is coming towards my table, I got to get up and go. Like, I'll probably just hang out outside, wait till everything's done, and then go back in afterwards and be like, hey, I wasn't a part of that. Can I get a new meal? Oh, so you're going to try to get some new food. Oh, uh, if they ruin my meal, I'll be like, hey, can I, can I get a makeup meal? Like, I know y'all just got into Duke a huge out. fight, <laughs> but, like... I mean, I'm still a paying customer. How and soon? I'll, I'll be coming back. Don't worry. How soon do you think they have to get back to work? You know, because it's 24 seven. So uh, how soon after the scuffle? You know, maybe sweeping up. I feel like all I the feel debris. Like they'll just they'll go outside, smoke a cigarette, decompress, and then they're back at it. Just man, that was crazy, huh? All right, man. You know, we'll gotta we'll gotta get the morning shift in here. Yeah. They got. <laughs> hey, they gotta keep rolling. Roll with the punches. That's that's what literally. happens when you work at. Yeah, literally. So what happens when you work at Waffle House? Just roll with the punches, roll with the chairs. When's the last time you've been to a Waffle House? Oh, it's been 15 years. Wow. 
Yeah. Well, because we don't have them out here, and I've lived out here for about 15 years. So, yeah, probably I was early teens. That's why I never saw anything like this, because I was never at one at 2 o'clock in the morning. Last time I went to a Waffle House was this past Thanksgiving. Flew into St. Louis and had to drive down to Kansas City, Kansas to pick up my sister because that's where she lives now. But the first thing is, let's stop at a Waffle House. There you go. And I was so happy to be at that Waffle House. Apparently, uh, according to Jared, uh, I believe it was Kansas City. He said their uh, their Waffle Houses are a thing of beauty. They they're all. I was at a Waffle House in Florida one time, and I'm there with my mother. And, you know, it was more like the, the whole family's coming. You know, everybody's in their cars because it was, you know, a Disney World trip. You know, other people got to come in their cars. But me and my mother, we get there first. And I'm so mad because then we end up going to Chick-fil-A. I know you're a big fan of Chick-fil-A. Oh, yeah. I am, too. But we ended up going to Chick-fil-A because it's like, you know, noonish. But we sit down at the Waffle House, and there is a roach crawling on the wall. And I thought my mom was just making a face of like, oh, she's trying to be funny. I don't get, I don't get the joke. But she's like, oh, you, you don't see like that roach crawling on the wall? And then she wanted to leave. And I was so upset. I was like, that's part of the experience. Why don't you just change tables? It's, it's fine. Yeah. I We're mean, they're not going to be at all the tables. They're not getting a Michelin star? Of course. I mean, after this fight, <laughs> you never know. This is, oh, man, right as I look down, the lady, <laughs> the the lady topples over the counter. Man, oh, man. it's fantastic. She tried to step down on the other side and... It looks like she missed her step and uh, went down hard. Really just took the L. I mean, that's she took the biggest L in the entire video. I think she took two. Because she was like, because <laughs> I, I, dude, I've watched this video probably seven times now, just in the last 15 minutes. She was on like the short counter, then got down, walked over about seven feet, then climbed onto the big counter, and then tried to climb over, and that's when she tumbled. She was perfectly fine on the short counter, but as soon as she got to the big counter, she she ran into some trouble. All right, well, that's just about going to do it for us here on the fight game on 1230, the game. I want to say thank you to Sam Gordon from the Review Journal, Cameron Hawkins from The Ringer, talking about boxing, talking about wrestling, and talking about Waffle House. But before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't give my condolences, RIP, to the GOAT, Pele, and soccer passed away just you know, a few short minutes ago. So also want to give those condolences, you know, a great World Cup. So, you know, soccer is fresh on the mind. And thank you to Danny for joining me for a few good minutes. We will see you in 2023 here on the fight game on 1230, the game. Protect yourself at all times and stay safe, everybody.